Алекса, стоп. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives with Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. So here we are. It's Alexa Stop. It is a new year, 2018, and we are back for our first episode. Mr. Robert Belgrave, how the devil are you? I am very well, Jim, and looking forward to what promises to be a fantastic 2018. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. Um, uh, excited the, about the, today's episode and uh, excited about some of the things we've got to talk about because there's a little bit of fun in there. There's some serious stuff that we can dig into. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? No, I don't think so. Happy New Year, my friend. Even, Happy New Year. It's e- good to be back. Even by the time this comes out, is it not too late? <laughs> well, we'll see how long the edit takes. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about this one. I think we're going to be bang on it after a little break. So yeah. So this week we've been up to something very special. We have, we have. We did a, a series of special podcasts, which will be coming out via the uh, traditional Alexa Stop channel with our dear friends from Innovation Social, a bit of a collaboration. And it might be that one of them has already come out. Uh, almost certainly when you're listening to this, and the other one will be to follow. Yeah, and what we know from this is that the one that Rob co-presents on is about CES and, and all the things that went on there, and it will be a simple edit. Almost certainly, very straightforward. Can't imagine why that might be. And a meandering all over the place episode about computational creativity, uh, which will not be a simple edit. No, which obviously is hosted by none other than Mr. Jimbo's. You know, and Lawrence Weber. And Lawrence Weber and friends. But no, it was great. And we managed to cram, what, five guests? Well, five people, including us, uh, into our little studio. And and, a small uh, audience. At Manifesto HQ, yeah. And a small, small live audience as well, with the moss wall as a backdrop, as always, which I'm I'm staring at now. Yeah, it was good fun. So, what uh, what's today's episode about? Well, today's episode, it, we've got a kind of range of subjects today. Uh, we've got a really interesting guest, Mr. Andy Budd, who'll be joining us shortly in the studio. And um, Andy's one of those guys who just does loads of different, really interesting stuff. So I'm quite looking forward to a kind of a dance through the, the Juve agenda, um, which is a, a fascinating initiative he's involved with, the work he does at his agency Clearleft, the amazing conference UX London, and just getting his thoughts on the weird and wonderful stuff going on this year. And let's be honest, Rob, he's already here. And we've been chatting for 45 minutes about loads of this stuff. And we're oh, like, we must start recording you're, it. You're spoiling the magic of podcasts, Jim. And he's enjoying an Earl Grey as we speak and, and smiling and, 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 and cheersing us now. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get his mic on shortly and, and get him in. The big question is, will this bit stay in the edit? That's always the question. It is always the question and almost certainly it will. So the, the, what's important now is that we get people to get in touch with us. So you can follow us uh, on Twitter these days. What's our handle? You can indeed. Alexa underscore stop. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud. And we're going to be releasing the podcast using a new platform called Entail. Uh, Entail have contacted us. They've got a really interesting, innovative product. Try and make podcasting a bit easier to kind of segment into chapters. And they've kindly offered us uh, the use of the platform to kind of help them develop it and, and showcase the amazing product, I guess, that they've got. So thanks to Hannah and the team at Entail, and we'll be making that available to all of you as well. So keep an Very eye out for that. exciting news. Yeah. And you can get in touch with me directly uh, at Jimbo's on Twitter. And at Robert Belgrave for me. So do let us know if you've got any questions, you've got any corrections. We like a correction, don't we? We love a correction. Should we move on to some corrections? So <laughs> the last episode that we uh, put out was on Christmas Eve. It was. It was on Christmas Eve, which was... Uh, An partly, early Christmas present. Partly because it was a Christmas special and partly because December was a really crazy month. But yeah, we, we did our first live show here at Manifesto HQ. Uh, we had, what, 60 guests join us, which was great fun. And Rob adds uh, five every time he says it. CEO numbers. Jim drank a whole bottle of wine and I tried to get a recording out of him. 
that it vaguely is a recording. There were some moments that maybe you had to be there. <laughs> At least one of those moments. So, Jim, I think it's time to do the news. Would you kindly produce a news jingle for us? It's the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it is the news. Indeed it is. And uh, as always, we've got a couple of interesting stories from the last month in the tech world. We thought we'd start with Meltdown and Spectre. I love that Bond movie. It's just we're all over Christmas again, <laughs> oh, aren't we? I, I was going for the Bond movie gag as well, but you beat me to it. Um, Do you know what you can do? it? Because we've seen how I did the, the gag. Uh, so let's talk about Meltdown and Spectre. Who's your favourite Bond, Jim? Um, Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Good choice. Good choice. Um, Obviously, like, the worst James Bond. <laughs> Come on. It's, it's, oh, it's a, a choice between Roger Moore I'm a massive, I'm a and massive, Sean Connery. I'm a massive Brosnan fan, which is just carbon what? dates me. He's not the best. He's actually what? probably one of the worst. He's a SNES game. But GoldenEye just has a special place in my heart. Anyway, let's talk about Intel's version. And not just Intel, actually. Everyone thinks this is an Intel-only thing. But there's a massive security vulnerability. Again, there'll be lots more of these over the coming years. Actually, multiple. Yeah, a, a double oh. a double header, as it were. So Meltdown and Spectre was a, a, a pretty fundamental vulnerability in processor architecture, I guess, uh, which, you know, the, the CPUs or processors that are in all of the different computers that all of us have, Apple Macs, PCs, etc., uh, from servers to home computers, the things that power phones. basically all of the internet, some phones even. I mean, I mean this is a wide-ranging vulnerability. And it's hard to explain this without getting really deep into the tech, but basically... It's a particular problem on systems where multiple people share them. So in, in the context of hosting and, and servers, it's a really big deal because a lot of the sort of cloud hosting world revolves around this idea of kind of multi-tenancy and, and consuming services on a shared basis. So those guys really freaked out. And like Microsoft had to do massive rolling reboots of all of their stuff. Amazon had to do the same thing. And it caused a lot of disruption for, for some pretty major services that people rely on. So yeah, that was kind of a big story. But I thought the other really interesting thing about it was that it got discovered by four different groups of independent security researchers, seemingly with no correlation. Yeah, no particular connection. I think there was a, there's a good article in Wired talking about this and um, how when one research team got in touch, Intel kind of went, oh yeah, three people already told us about this. But like in the last week, it was this sort of quadruple collision. Of, uh, and and it's, apparently it's not the first time that's happened either. It's like there's something in the water at certain times of year and everyone just goes, I know, let's see if we can break a really, you know, it's like a 10-year-old assumption that that was safe because it's not a new thing, it turns out. And that's what's so so sort of devastating about this vulnerability is this isn't just like the latest generation. It's actually basically since, you know, almost since records began in terms of how CPUs have been made. So if we try and talk about these exploits without getting too technical and into the detail, my understanding was, of them was, though, and I want to really just try and put this in perspective. So, okay, really bad security flaw, but basically one of them means that you might be able to get small pieces of information, probably partial pieces of information that you would need to join together in order to get anything meaningful. And the other one means that if you could sort of join that, you might be able to get that information out. Yeah, I, look, I don't like to belittle security vulnerabilities, but I don't think any of you have really a huge amount to be worried about in terms of your home computers. There are, you know, if you're going to get compromised or have your data stolen, it's probably not going to be through this vector. But it's, it's an, an attack of a higher quality than your average sort of virus ransomware right. kind of but, stuff. But, you know, the disruption to the wider, wider internet was pretty significant. And uh, the thing about this story that I found the most offensive, I guess, is that the Intel boss dumped a load of his stock before they announced it publicly, which I really, really? I didn't see that. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the speculation. But, I, you know, I really hope if that's true that the SEC have a little chat with him sometime soon. Is it? Did he buy it all back again when the share price went down 20% <laughs> that, and went, ah, nice day's work? That would 
probably make it worse. Anyway, let's move on before I get myself in, in hot water with uh, Intel's legal team. Uh, our second news story was... Rob, 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 I've just sent you a text. <laughs> What's that, Jim? The text says there's a ballistic missile oh, coming. Oh, no! I'm going to leave my car in the middle of the motorway and run for, run for cover in a tunnel, as many of the citizens of Hawaii, unfortunately, found themselves doing. So um, this one was pretty widely reported, so I'm sure you've heard a bit about this. But um, there's a, you know, like all good developed countries, Hawaii has a missile warning system to notify citizens in the event of a ballistic missile hurtling towards their country. I have to admit, I'd never really thought about this. And I was, I I didn't know, do we have one of these? I hope so. Have you subscribed? (laughs) Uh, Has the government just, I mean, I've had the same mobile phone number since I was 17. So I'm hoping I've got a bloody good chance of being on the list. (laughs) Do they put it, I guess they put it on Twitter and like take over the TV stations. I mean, God knows. But um, I can tell you from the work I used to, I can talk about this now because it's been long enough since I did the work. We used to host the Queen's website, royal.gov.uk. And they have this sort of code name project for if all of the royals die. And they all have these like carefully planned you know, like binders with every little thing about how they'll announce it. And they have these code names all named after bridges. That's as much as I can say. But I'm sure... It's interesting that you bring this up, Rob, because um, the Queen has shown her displeasure at people talking. So there's a lady who uh, used to be the person that fitted the Queen's bras who wrote a book called, I don't know, something, some play on cup, I imagine, and size. And the Queen removed the royal warrant from the company that she came from because of it. So maybe you, if you thought were looking to have the royal warrant then you could be in all kinds of trouble then then i'm in real trouble well there we go and that obe that you wanted oh damn it that is screwed well maybe i don't have one but my grandmother does so maybe she's in trouble but that's another story she could sell it to you i suppose but look it's going to be intel's legal team or the royal family's hitmen that will be taking me down after this episode but let's talk about the poor soul in hawaii who pressed the wrong button shall we yeah i mean we think it's as simple as that don't we that that basically they test it every day so that they know that this system twice apparently twice a day once at 12 and once at 1201 uh, and uh, they they can there's probably a drop down somewhere in this system that says send to all the people of hawaii or just send to the test mobile on my desk yeah and um yeah unfortunately for this poor individual and there's been a lot written online about this which maybe we'll get into later in the episode about this kind of is it the system's fault is it the individual's fault you know should it be possible or or even plausible for somebody to accidentally it, send that notification out. Is it bad UX? That's, yeah, that's the question. I, ultimately, it's into. a question of UX, right? Which is certainly an area our, our guest is. is well, I would say he's an expert in. And yeah, I, it's a very interesting debate. And there's been some really great commentary on this online. But I guess it's slightly amusing for us to talk about it now. But I feel genuinely sorry for the people who abandoned their cars right in the middle of the motorway and ran for cover. And like people properly freaked out, as you would, frankly. So yeah. I think that's it's worth new. worrying about. That's news, isn't it? Like that's that's a pretty big deal. I can't remember a story like that happening in the past. So no, I mean, I suppose. Look, it's not as bad as sending the real alert to the test list. <laughs> that would be like a bad situation. Pro- yeah, yeah. Don't really know where to go with that, other than I I can't disagree. Uh, so maybe let's talk about CES, shall we? Yeah, CES. On the subject of disasters. Well, th- this year, this year CES, I think, has been about the big tech companies getting involved again. I mean, I've always treated CES as just uh, a load of companies trying to sell you new tellies, uh, which is probably quite belittling to the world's biggest consumer technology conference. But no, it's all about um, the tellies. It's all about the tellies. But this year, um, uh, transport and artificial intelligence really came together because Google just put some sticky plastic on the side of the monorail in Las Vegas. Uh, and there you go. The, the advert for Google Assistant stuck to something that moves. AI, 
AI transport. transport. There, there it, it is. is. Yeah, and um, one of our episodes that we, we mentioned at the top of the show with the Innovation Social guys focuses on CES, so do check that out, the one with Will Harvey. But, you know, I think that he'd just come back and sort of his, his comments were that... He was a little bit tired, wasn't he? He was a little bit tired. But I, thought, I thought he performed admirably. I, I thought he was high energy all the way until he got to the pub. <laughs> and then he was like, now I need sleep. Yeah. Well, maybe it was because he'd had to deal with being pitched new TVs, and but also apparently the voice assistant was very much on show, and it was a bit of a battle between Amazon and Google this year at CES. But the big story, unfortunately, was not about the new technology. It was about well, the tech press does like to focus in on the failures, doesn't it? And, There's a couple of key. And there fails. were a couple of key fails from CES this year, which we'll cover now. So the first of which was at a consumer technology conference, they didn't have any power. This is bad. They blamed it on the rain. They did. Apparently there was torrential rain throughout the conference and uh, this caused some flooding and, and ultimately the uh, destruction of some of the power grid in the area. So imagine, Rob, you're the company that designs those little boxes where you put your phone into it. Um, right. And you imagine a scenario where there's a power cut. What's the obvious thing with your security head on you do? Well, obviously you, you leave them locked. Yeah, lock those phones away. We don't want we don't someone cutting the power to our system to steal the phones. And if I was to ask you how to piss off a journalist, would locking their phone in a box <laughs> in a public place be reasonably high on that list, Jim? When you're at a massive conference trying to file a story, when the Wi-Fi has gone down in the place. Yeah, I, I, I feel so sorry for them, honestly. I mean, I shouldn't. They should have thought of it and come up with a B plan. But I, I don't know. I just feel so sorry for the organisers. It must have been absolute carnage. Huge power cut. I think the thing about this, is this, this made me think of your CTO, uh, this part of the story. And, and this is Will. Oh, he, he'd have had a solution to that, no doubt. To this bit, but he definitely would have had a solution to this next bit that I'm going to say. So the lights all went out. So people are in pitch black. Yeah. They're crying because they can't get to their phones. But then of this enormous conference, about two stands are still powered up because some CTO or technical director of some event stand has gone, no, you definitely need backup power. Is it Samsung? No, Samsung, dark. Sony, lights are all on. <laughs> well, they've, uh, they've earned their money on this occasion, haven't they? Probably the one time in a decade of doing trade show stands that it's paid off. There's someone that, that, that wanted that extra budget spent that convinced someone to do it who was running circles around a room <laughs> somewhere going, we were right. Um, and then the, the other thing that I really loved was a complete fail with LG's new uh, smart assistant robot. Yeah, I, I must say I only heard about this. So could you tell me a bit more about what went down? So they've got a new robot called Cloy. It's meant to be sort of an assistant to help you organise your smart home, I think is the general idea. And it basically, at a sort of keynote -y kind of moment, here's our big announcement, didn't answer back to the person talking to it. So live on stage. With Just blinking. The CMO. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, basically completely upstaged their new technology announcement and made them look like they hadn't made it work. They, yeah. they, they, you know, people say, you know, uh, children and animals, but... That's exactly what <laughs> I was just thinking. Children, animals and robots is clearly yeah. the, uh, the 2018 version of the don't work with quip. So um, yeah. talking of your CTO, have you got any CTO stories to share with me? I do. I do. Um, my CTO never fails, does he, to, to delight us with a, with a story. And, and There's so a lovely turn of phrase in here. Um, on this occasion, my CTO went home for Christmas, like so many people do. He went to see his in-laws, and they were having Wi-Fi troubles. So what do most people do when they go to their in-laws' house and there are Wi-Fi troubles? They just sort of put up with it. Oh, well, you know, I'm in the countryside somewhere. The Wi-Fi is average. I'll just, I'll live with it. But no. It's a Christmas scene. You can imagine <laughs> them pe people saying to him, don't worry about it. Spend time with your family. 
Well, he wasn't having it, Jim. And out came the Spectrum Analyzer. And of course, he managed to track down the local 2.4 gigahertz interference that one of their neighbor's houses was causing. He uh, promptly knocked on the door and helped them replace their Wi-Fi with a spare one that he happened to have with him. (laughs) I'm not joking. I'm really not embellishing this. Sometimes I have to. This one is really bang on the money. And as a result of this... Not only did he improve the Wi-Fi for his in-laws, but the entire street's Wi-Fi got significantly better once the uh, rogue access point had been removed. That's which, amazing. Which I think is a, is a mic drop moment if it's, you're a CTO. You know, community involvement. Indeed. And he mentioned that it's, he also kicked off conversation with the neighbours about building a small uh, WISP, as they're referred to, which is a kind of mesh Wi-Fi network for, yes. the, for the community. But that, that maybe was one for next year. <laughs> or maybe he could go down at Easter. Yeah, yeah. Next family holiday, that's the one. So, um, so that's our CTO story from this month. And I think, Jim, it's time for some hype curve action. Something from the hype curve. Something indeed. And, and a little bit of a correction as well. We do like a correction. So can you make your correction crisper? <laughs> hey, it is unfortunately about crisper. So we've covered crisper or crisper gene editing a number of times on this podcast because it's a very, very exciting sort of bioscience area that... I mean, a lot of people are pinning their hopes on this as a kind of breakthrough that will help cure a lot of really horrendous diseases and and stuff. So um, we are hoping that they figure this out. But after endless work with this whole Cas9 protein splicing stuff that CRISPR is based on, they've discovered that actually it appears that maybe our immune systems are so sort of aggressive that this is never going to work. And that maybe all along our immune systems were ready for modified Cas9 proteins and that they won't be able to make a boy that will swim as fast as a shark or cure male pattern baldness or solve any of those other awful diseases that are actually considerably more serious than the two I mentioned. Well, yeah, but those are the ones we're concerned about. Swimming fast whilst not bald. (laughs) Definitely a a key combination there. But are you disappointed or were you scared about the future of gene editing? Probably a bit of both, honestly. Like, I think I do find the gene editing thing freaky. Like, I'll never forget the the talk at South by last year with Will Roper, the head of R&D for the Pentagon, talking quite sort of casually about how, well, yeah, of course, we'll splice some animal DNA with humans if it's in the good of the force, you know, for the good of our country's defense, like it was not a big deal. And I just, if you were going to be spliced with uh, an animal, what animal would you be spliced with? I feel like we've done this gag before. I'd probably, I don't know, I'd go for something that runs really, really fast. Mm. Okay. A cheetah. A cheetah. Or a puma. Jaguar, maybe. Mm. Good. Where, where, are we, where are we going with this? Um, so, Jim, I think the, the final section that we would like to cover, as always, before we welcome our fantastic guest, is some tech we'd like to bring back. And this one, I know absolutely nothing about. It's because you're younger than me, Rob. It is because I'm younger than you, Jim. So... Jim, I understand you'd like to bring back some sort of bear yes. robot. Uh, so this is in dedication to CES, in dedication to LG and Cloy, and in dedication to the power cut at CES this year. Teddy Ruxpin uh, okay. was an animated bear robot toy from the 80s. Uh, and a first at the time, bringing that sort of real excitement into uh, childhood of something that is sort of a robot bear toy. Um, and it needed a lot of power. It needed big Duracell batteries to keep it going. And uh, there's a great advert where um, it's kind of like a sort of Frankenstein sort of metaphor kind of setup right. where they're showing the batteries bringing it to life. Oh, God. Uh, and I think uh, that's kind of what CES needed, basically. Bigger batteries. Bigger batteries, more Teddy Ruxpins. Because, uh, you know, to be fair, Teddy Ruxpin definitely talks and Cloy didn't. Uh, the fact that it wasn't intelligent, well, who cares? It was the first talking bear robot. 
I mean, I'm sure there wasn't a huge amount of competition for that as a category, but uh, Teddy <laughs> Ruxpin was the bear filling it. <laughs> the first and only Talking Bear robot. And so there we go. Tech we'd like to bring back. I reckon there's been more to- Talking Bear. I mean, I, there's probably a Talking Bear robot with a tablet crunched into its chest, I imagine, somewhere. Almost certainly. There we go. There we go. There's some tech we'd like to bring back. <laughs> I'm going to order you one on eBay, Rob. You're not convinced, are you? Well, no, well, um, I look forward to receiving it. And, uh, and you know, if I make it out of here alive with the, the, the death threats from Intel, then I'll, I'll report back next month on, on, on what Teddy's all about. It's all right. AMD's got your back. <laughs> okay, I think that is enough rambling from us. Let's reset the studio and bring in our wonderful guest, Andy Budd, to talk through all of the fascinating topics we'll be covering today. Let's do it. So welcome back, everybody, and welcome to the studio, none other than Mr. Andy Budd. Say hello, Andy. Hey, guys. So happy to be here. It's really nice to see you. It's really nice to hang out, being in lovely kind of Shoreditch. Um, Yeah, I can't wait to chat. Thank you. And I'm as excited to chat as I am about the dinner we're going to go for afterwards. Uh, We've had quite a bit of off-mic chat about the delicious food food we're going for. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that. Andy, you have a very impressive CV. And, you know, we always like to read a bit of somebody's bio out uh, as we introduce them. So you are originally a UX designer, the CEO of the fantastic agency ClearLeft, the Digital Brighton co-founder and the curator of UX London and LD Conf. And you've also recently been involved in the very interesting Juve Agenda, which we're going to talk about a bit. And as a renowned design leader and agency CEO, you've helped companies like Virgin Holidays, John Lewis and Penguin Random House with issues of customer experience, product strategy and digital transformation. Is that a fair assessment? Um, I think you just read it almost word from word from my bio, so I would hope so. Let's yeah. hope so. Yeah, cool. absolutely. And not yeah. that's not like us to just like come and paste something off no, the internet. No, no, of course not. Um, so, I mean, I, I always like to talk a bit about how I know our guests. And so Andy was someone that I've sort of personally I've met through the agency world. The more time I've spent with Andy, the more I realise he's both an all-round gentleman, but also somebody who seems to be very well-read and well-informed on most subjects, but seems to be able to talk about them without sort of putting them across like so many people do. Uh, And you have a very kind of gentle manner, but I've enjoyed all the conversations we've had today. So I hope today is another one of those. I mean, it's all a lie. I know very little about very little things, but I'm quite good at bluffing. So as long as you don't sort of call me out and ask for any in-depth answers, I'm, I'm happy to play along. Don't worry, you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's kick off. I, I, just, to, just to ask you a question, uh, because we talked a lot in your intro about uh, the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Just something really simple. What's your favourite project from the last five years? Um, I mean, I would argue it's it's difficult, but... The most recent project is always the one you fall in love with. I think if you are a designer, one of your goals is to constantly be improving, both improving your work, your practice, improving the outcomes you deliver to clients. So I think if I was to say, oh, yeah, I did this wonderful thing five years ago and we haven't bested it since, that would Mm. kind of be an indication that me as a designer or my agency is kind of sort of plateauing. So the reality is like, you know, the thing that we're working on at the moment is always a thing that is kind of really exciting us. We're doing a big engagement with Virgin Holidays and Virgin Atlantic. Awesome. And and, and that's just been so much fun, kind of helping a team improve their digital practice, delivering great work, running design sprints, getting the board on board, showing them the power of, of design. You know, one of the things I'm really passionate about is I think Design has often been overlooked. Over the last five or six years, a lot of people are looking for advantage through marketing, through technology. And I think we're now getting to this like situation where that isn't 
constantly bringing in new revenue. Like you can't just throw more designers or more, sorry, more developers or more technology at a problem. And so design, I think, is the next area for kind of competitive advantage. And so helping organizations realize that, helping them gain that maturity to unlock that value that design can bring, I think is, is super exciting. And that's what we love to do. Yeah, very good. Um, so just to sort of take that from, so that's sort of been now and a little bit of leading up to now, thinking about the future, what is the thing that scares you most about the future and what's the thing that excites you most about the future? Um, I don't, well, I'm not, they're probably the same thing, to be honest. I, I'm not a very scared person. I'm also probably not a very excited person in the <laughs> sense that... Um, You've been normalised. Yeah, but I think one of the one of the things around designers is and technologists is we sort of already are constantly living in the future like i'm a time traveler i invent the future for my clients the future i'm inventing might be in six months it might be in two years so one of the really fun things is living in that future and at the same time because of that you're kind of you're tussling with complex ideas that maybe other people mainstream society might be having three or four years down the line and so often we're also exposed to challenging concepts that um, you know, might not be sort of mainstream, and I think that probably might be a nice segue into the the Juve agenda yeah, that you yeah, mentioned. Absolutely, tell and, us all and, about and that and why we did it. So, I think one of the things I realised. I mean, there's two angles to this. One of the things I realised last year is artificial intelligence is real. It's now, and it will be our future. I think there's huge amounts of investment. I think the cost of processing and the ability of kind of GPUs and all this kind of stuff is meaning that, you know, it's gone from being science fiction to very, very soon science fact. It's still being driven by technologists, chip manufacturers, you know, artificial intelligence researchers and the big tech companies. And designers and other storytellers have so far not really been involved. And I think that what you tend to find is people like me and other kind of designers and storytellers are the ones that take new technology and socialize them. They take these ideas and they make them palatable. They make them human. They make them humane. And I felt that like you, I've seen a lot of retreats where they take 30, you know, middle aged to aging white dudes who are computer scientists away to plan the future over the next 10, 20 years. And I wanted to try and do something different. I wanted to try and do something that had a more diversity of thought. So I discovered that the filming location for the movie Ex Machina was a hotel. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I rented that hotel out and took 20 to 30 people away to have an immersive uh, retreat to discuss the future of AI? I took um, uh, graphic novelists. I took um, science fiction authors. I took researchers, I took ethicists, I took a cyborg anthropologist, I took a specialist in sex with robots. <laughs> um, I, I brought people who were uh, working on AI projects in big tech companies like Google and also kind of like artists and hackers. And we spent three or four days basically exploring this new space, understanding it, sharing our, our kind of knowledge. And I think the thing we sort of came to is the thing that kind of turned out that we all kind of shared was this kind of ideal around humanizing technology and effectively becoming a humanist having a humanist view on technology so i had a few questions about this one was why was it in norway and uh, you've answered that question <laughs> because it was the hotel for the for the film um and so i guess then how did you 
choose and select and find the people to come and, and did you sort of just fund it and say this i'm taking you here and or would you come how did that it work on a sort of how, how did you get from this would be a nice idea to the, this thing happened because i i feel like this is a sort of convert this is the sort of thing we go this is an amazing idea and not many of those become reality and i, and I love how casually oh well you know i just thought it'd be fun and then it's like d- delivered this amazing event with like 20 leading minds in the field so yeah it's fascinating i, I think i do most of my things through naivety and stupidity and i think that just means that i don't get afraid of all of the possible things that could go wrong basically and there was an element of selfishness like this place was beautiful it was in the middle of nowhere i thought wouldn't it be cool to go there i sent an email to this company and they said yeah sure come along i booked it about a year in advance and then i'm i'm quite fortunate i mean like a lot of you people i I speak at conferences i've been speaking at events like you know south by southwest you know i was one of the first british people to go and talk at south by southwest i've built up an amazing network of people And it was effectively just drawing all those friends and saying, look, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to be part of it? And people were really excited. Um, I I had a kind of a good idea that I wanted to get a real mix of of, of genders and backgrounds and interests. I didn't want it just to be, you know, like, you know, white middle class American men that that, that are are focused on kind of uh, technology. And so I just I just, you know, put out the feelers. And, you know, a lot of people were really enthusiastic. You know, we had folks flying over from America, like actually a lot of the people from the States, a lot of people from the UK and, and, and Europe. I, I sort of like put my credit card on the line in the hope that people would come along and we basically split split the cost. It wasn't a profit-making thing. It was yeah. kind of like, I'll take the initial risk. If you want to come along, we'll, we'll split the bill. And as well as it just being in this beautiful location, we did a load of fun things. You know, we watched the movie. Um, we had a meta game where we where I secretly nominated three or four people who were replicants. <laughs> and there was a kind of a game happening in the background where we had to kind of find who the replicants are. Sort of secret Hitler. Yeah, the yeah it was basically secret Hitler <laughs> or kind of werewolf. And nice. so there's that stuff going along. Also, everyone that came, because they didn't all know each other but they all knew of each other and we had enough kind of shared connections that there there was a real camaraderie people just felt warm and comfortable and able to open up and because it was in a beautiful location as well like we'd we'd go for long walks we climbed a a mountain and 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 walked to a, um, a glacier being able to kind of being this amazing nature and think a little bit more expansively, I think yeah, also yeah. helped us like Perfect. with the, the humanist thing. And so, yeah, it was wonderful. And I think we came away with a real sense of some of the challenges that were facing humanity, you know, and some of them were very big. Some of them were very small. Some of them were like, you know, focusing on the the potential mass unemployment that technology and automation might bring. Yeah, robotic um, work for workforces and so on. Absolutely. On the other level, a lot of it was around the natural bias that you bake into artificial intelligence based on training data. Absolutely. And yeah, we've talked and, a lot about that on the podcast. You know, we're encoding our own biases into these machines. It's absolutely. a big problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, and so what we came away with, we didn't want to come away with a manifesto. We thought that was a bit too self-aggrandizing mm-hmm. but what we created is we created a set of provocations or questions that we thought we wanted to answer we didn't know the answers to but also we thought that when we are designing systems whether they're they're robots that live in our homes or whether they're you know artificially enabled like agents that these are the kind of the things that we should consider and so if you go to juveagenda.org there's a list of the output from three days from 20 or 30 really smart people around the things that we think are important and just because obviously I think there's a lot of synchronicity here. We did this and at the same time, three or four other groups of people were doing very similar things. And yeah. within the space of a month or two, 
loads of different organizations, whether they were governmentally funded, whether they were universities, or whether they just a bunch of designers going on a jolly, all kind of often, you know, came to um, came to kind of similar conclusions. So it felt like there was there was something in there. And and do check out the website. It's um, not only is there some really really amazing insight on there, but there's also some photos of the glorious landscape and uh and you and some of your compatriots looking looking like you're working very hard yeah i mean we had a great time it was so good and it was such a bonding experience and it was so positive that we're going to do it again next year so literally that that was my next question so you definitely do it again yeah literally the day after i said i'm i'm booking this again and um we're probably going to do is try and bring about a third of the people that went with us last year Mm -hmm. uh, two-thirds new people and probably what we're going to try and do because one of the challenges for a lot of some some of the younger people or some of the people that were academics or artists is they were struggling a little bit with paying the cost. So I think what we might do is up the fee for 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 corporates and people working in companies in order to allow an even more diversity of thought and and backgrounds so we can we can sort of you know take the juve agenda to the next level. And that's why we wanted to call it the agenda, not a manifesto. This mm-hmm. is the start of a conversation and I suspect every year for the next three or four years we'll be developing that and, and pushing it forwards. I'd love to just give give our listeners the four perspectives for action, right? The, the key bullets. And there's, there's lots more great content to read. But, you know, mainstream understanding of AI is haphazard. I couldn't agree more. We've talked about it a lot. We don't know the shape of what's to come. Absolutely. I think everything that people are, are sort of theorizing right now is is the work of futurism. And, and so much of that is based on sci-fi, you know, in an almost an un- unconscious way. And that's actually one of the reasons why we had sci-fi authors come along, because they are the ones that have been living with this world 20, 30 years. Right. And also, I think a big part of, of making this stuff mainstream is telling stories. And at the moment, the stories are very negative. Mm-hmm. They're very dystopian. And I think in order for these, these objects to live in our lives and have a positive influence, we need to tell better, more detailed, more nuanced stories. And at the moment, it's either we have nothing to worry about or the world is yeah, going to sort of fall on our heads. An and actually it's, it's, it's going to be one, one of my friends uh, who's, who now works at Google talks around the, the future mundane. The future isn't going to be this shiny, you know, dystopia or utopia. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be your home, home robot run out of battery. It's going to be yeah. the Wi-Fi signals clashing and, and your, your technology is not going to work with each other. And, and we're going to be surrounded by lots more. Like I travel a lot to Japan. I, I am yet to see a um a pepper robot in a soft bank actually working they're usually <laughs> slumped over with a, with a bug on them or, or uh, uh, yeah un, like you know kind of battery battery dead and that's what we're going to be walking into is like a really you know dysfunctional um but disappointing you know um future in some regard and it's all incremental right as well yeah. so even if look you know even if now we were to see a snapshot of 30 years from now and it would be amazing. By the time we arrive there, the, it all happens incrementally. So we'd, we're probably not ever going to have that one day where we wake up and go, oh my God, everything's different. The cars are flying. Do you know what I mean? I, like- I don't know though. I think I think we are an, an unusual point. You know, a lot of people have sort of talked about this idea that in the sort of like the, the 19, like 20s or 30s, mm. if you jump forward like 30 or 40 years, you know, or, or maybe even earlier, like the, the, you know, 50 years from the, from the 1900s to the 1950s, the world would have changed quite a lot. You would have gone maybe from from gas to electricity. You would have gone from horse and carts to, to to cars. You would have gone, you know, from air balloons to planes. Suddenly the future looks crazy different. If you then jump forward another 50 years, very little have changed. You know, you'll, you'll have electricity. 
Um, you'll have phones, they might be smaller. You have TVs, they might be smaller. But but the last 50 years hasn't actually been anywhere near as dramatic. If, uh, someone coming from the from, from the future mm-hmm. of 50 years ago wouldn't have expect, experienced much different. If you do that again now, if you jump 50 years in the future, again, I think we're going to have a massive change. We are going to have physical robots serving our needs. We're going to, you know, we couldn't, there's so much in the future that I think is going to be driven by marginal AI and kind of, you know, marginal kind of, um, uh, in the same way as like marginal horsepower has, has taken big engines and put them in our, in our, in our hands and in our, in, in our homes. I think marginal AI is going to do a similar thing. So, so there's a couple of things there. So there's, there's the sort of big question. Do you subscribe to the idea of the sort of fourth industrial revolution, which is kind of the, the sort of coined phrase that kind of relates to that change? I suppose it's also, so the one big change that I think I would sort of include in the big recent changes is sort of the uh, widely used internet is a reasonably big change, um, but you could argue that, that that perhaps people just still had information sources, and and but but I think it has had a big impact on society. So you might cut your fifty years so that it it maybe maybe it's actually social media that, that's been the, the the thing that's had a huge impact on our lives. But, but there is probably you need to almost pick your dates carefully. So where would you start your next fifty years from? Yeah. I think is an interesting question because I think it might go back a few years from where we are now, and it's the so it might might be 2000 until 2040 is the chunk that, that that would be could be a really interesting one to look at in future um we good to dig into one of the topics we touched on which was about uh, digital workforces yeah why not um, i think it's a fascinating subject and um so uh, this this uh, in the last couple of weeks i've been looking at robotic process automation software and uh, also met with someone who is in charge of that for a large organization who have 20,000 uh, back office staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those would be the people in the first wave potentially of being affected by automation. I guess the the, the question is, do you sort of subscribe to the um, second renaissance view of the world of positivity around that automation? Or are you more the daily mail view of the world, <laughs> which is they're going to take all our jobs? Um, I, I think, again, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it's really inconceivable to imagine in 50 years time we wouldn't be suffering from very very large scale underemployment particularly in very very specific classes of job you know there was a a foxconn factory recently that replaced some crazy number like 50,000 workers with 20,000 uh, sort of uh, yeah, robots. Foxconn who make the iPhone for, yeah, for, exactly. for our listeners, yeah. along with many other consumer electronic goods. Yes, exactly. The other phones are also available. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but yeah, you know, and, and I think it's inconceivable to think that there are certain classes of job where basically why would you want to risk um people getting ill people getting tired people going to sleep you know there's this idea of like lights off manufacturing very very quickly we get to a point where you don't need humans involved at all if you look at the 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 amazon um warehouse you know now all of the humans have been pushed to the side and it's not a very sort of big leap to imagine that at some stage you know, lights off and it's just automation and sooner the better as far as the likes of amazon are concerned right like from a cost perspective it well oh yeah from yeah from a from a cost perspective sort of definitely and i think this is true in a lot of classes of job and and some people would argue well these are kind of like not very pleasant jobs and why wouldn't we want to get rid of them except the people that are being affected by those jobs and you know a lot of those individuals are not going to be re- able to retrain the challenge is i think my my fundamental belief is that in the Industrial Revolution has 
allowed us to take over certain physical traits. So it used to be that you needed person power to pump a pump in a field and then you attach a motor to it. Now you don't need the physical power, you know, pulling a car, you know, pulling a you know, horse pulling a car, et cetera, et cetera. But that then allows other sort of capabilities, dexterity, uh, endurance, um, ability to remember things, ability to kind of output sort of cognition, et cetera, et cetera. But increasingly, all of these human abilities are being taken away by other tools. Even creativity, you know, we see lots of very, very crude experiments nowadays around creating narratives, creating jazz songs, et cetera, et cetera. Up until this point, every time that you've taken someone's physical power away, they, they've had another human ability to fall back on. When we get to the point that dexterity is gone because you've got computer hands that can manipulate very, very small things, you've got, you know, memory is already going because I now don't need to remember tons of names. It's all in outsourced into my into my phone and uh, the ability to, to, to you know, um, solve complex sort of human problems. Some of the few areas that we've got left are things like sort of human um, emotion and relationships. And even then, there's a ton of robotic projects working on robots that can um, sense human emotion, you know, kind of like home help, et cetera, et cetera. I think we are, if we don't make sensible, smart decisions around how we use these tools, we could very well find ourselves in a world of massive underemployment. This is where I think design comes in. And this is where some of the things around the Juve agenda come in, which is we get to choose. We get to choose whether um, we have a robot future where it benefits a very, very small number of shareholders or whether it benefits the whole of humanity. And some of the things that we were talking about is like, well, we should be creating systems that that take the drudgery out of rubbish work, but amplify the benefits of humanity. To give you an idea, Uber effectively has taken away a lot of what black cab drivers think is something around their core identity. They do the knowledge, they spend four or five years being able to navigate around yeah, London. it's a life for them, right? Yeah. An entire life. Yeah, and it, and it gives them a huge amount of meaning. One element is like, well, we could just make this easier. We could get you there two minutes faster because we can optimise that process. That then turns the people who are driving cars literally into automata. They get a pickup, they get told where to drive, and very, very quickly that will be taken away. It would be perfectly possible to create an Uber where they still rely on the taxi drivers, the thing that they really, really enjoy doing, the thing that makes them human, and the computer systems allow them to do that better. And there are lots of opportunities, you know, a lot of the robots we're designing these days are not intended to take over human work, but they tend to plan to work alongside humans. But this whole idea of augmentation as opposed to replacing something entirely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And obviously in our um, second innovation social podcast, where we talked about computational creativity and one of the things we're talking about was um, creative.ai, which uh, lo- looks at augmenting the, uh, the sort of creative process um, and I think that that's an interesting thing. But I think the Uber example is really fascinating because yeah, um, th- that sort of purely optimized uh, uh, version has also forgotten experience. Yep. Because uh, so Waze is the uh, primary uh, navigation finding app. But actually, Waze, whilst it could factor this in, it doesn't factor in speed bumps. And actually, I have had some of the most terrible journeys. And I would, I, on a personal level, on a human level, if I could have had a conversation which says, do you know what? I prefer a smooth journey to a fast journey. Yeah. Well, these, these systems are optimised for, like I say, operational efficiency and shareholder value. And they're not optimised for human experience or um, th- getting out the most out of the individuals that are kind of doing these tasks. And so, and it's a design decision. Yeah, um, and, and look, I think that's, that illustrates 
beautifully the point you were making about how, you know, the typical retreat, talk about designing something with AI would involve 20 tech guys. And 20 tech guys aren't going to be thinking about the experience from a human perspective of using something like Uber. They're going to be thinking about how do I make the next hop routing algorithm more efficient? How do I make this 20% more effective, more profitable, right? And I think I really, I really buy that idea of trying to bring the humanity back into the, you know, the automation that we're di- we're going through, and and kind of ultimately leading with design, right, as opposed to leading with technology at every juncture. Yeah, I mean, I think I, this is going to be a terrible misquote, but I think some of the team that were originally working on the Manhattan Project said something along the lines of, "We spent so much time asking ourselves whether it's possible, we never asked whether we should have done it." So let's talk about that responsibility then as a designer. Um, so uh, doctors uh, for a very long time. So I did a medicine through time as GCSE, uh, took the Hi- Hippocratic Oath. It should there be a uh, user experience and design oath uh, about using your powers responsibly to design systems that consider humans and humanity? I mean, a lot of, I'm not a, uh, a specialist in ethics. We did have a few people who were specialists in ethics along. And there was a real, you know, a lot of people believe that we already have the frameworks in place with which to do that. We don't need to create a new framework. I'm not entirely convinced by that argument, but I think the Juve agenda was part of our first, like, first attempt to kind of, this group to kind of raise some of those issues. I think for me, the, particularly, I think there's a, there's a governmental um, uh, sort of element there, which is, you know, very, very interestingly, the, the, the EU or no, the UN decided about a week or two ago, actually just before Christmas, to table a discussion around whether we should allow autonomous killing machines, whether we should put guns in the mm. arms of robots. Right, I saw this. Now, um, now, I also think the European Union particularly have a really, really interesting uh, conscience and dampening effect to have. You see a lot of the possibly negative um, or, or perceived negative aspects of Silicon Valley, you see um, a, a, a lot of European legislation trying to kind of bring a more humane um, approach to some of these things to kind of stop monopolistic practices to um, protect users and protect citizens, etc. I think there's a big um, discussion going on. And so I think, you know, institutions like the UN, you know, I could definitely imagine elements of robotics being brought into kind of, you know, uh, you know, human rights um, legislation. I can definitely imagine the EU saying, actually, we are not going to allow certain kinds of behaviour. I'm very, very interested in some of even, and this is a thing that kind of really worried me, um, you know, in the first, you know, first revolution, industrial revolution, it was the factory workers who were throwing the clogs into the looms. Now it's people like Elon Musk, the factory owners that are saying, you know, stuff is happening here. Now I don't, believe in a lot of the hyperbole coming out of people like Elon Musk. But if you see someone like um, Bill Gates saying that we are going to see mass joblessness and as a result, we need to start considering taxing robots in order to reclaim the tax that has been lost from lost human jobs Mm -hmm. and actually use that for some kind of universal basic wage. That is fascinating. That's, you know, that's very, very... Quite a provocative statement he made, right? Yeah, and also it's not, you know... these efficiencies are going to be the things that are benefiting these industrialists so you wouldn't normally expect them to saying hold on yeah yeah if that's happening if the if the if the factory owners are saying we have a problem here makes you stop and think i think that's time to listen and i do think that um 
the EU um, and, and other kind of lawmaking bodies have the opportunity to start exploring both um, robot taxis and universal basic income. I don't think it's going to be necessary now, but I think if we don't start thinking about this as an intellectual pursuit, 20, 30, 40, 50 years time, we might have missed the boat. Might be too late. If you're, it's interesting to think about whether you'll be responsible for the actions of your robot. So I believe uh, you, if you have a dog and your dog bites someone's arm off as the owner of the dog, you're yeah, responsible you're for it. But if you have a cat uh, and a cat bites someone's arm off, which I realise is slightly less likely, you're not responsible because a cat is considered to have its own mind, whereas a dog is that's not. True. You, I believe so. I wonder if that's a case law precedent or if that's less like a problem. I mean, I don't know how many cats have bitten people's arms <laughs> off, right? But are you responsible for your, your AI bot that, that, you, that somehow learnt some bad stuff from you by hanging out in your home and then decided to go and beat up your neighbour? And, and on that point, you know, this is one of the things holding back autonomous vehicles. Sorry, cab drivers, more bad news. Autonomous vehicles are coming and actually they basically work already. But one of the big challenges that they're having is figuring out from a programming perspective, do you kill your passenger or your owner, as it were, or do you kill the pedestrian, right? In those scenarios where the computer has to make an assessment about, do I run over the person walking in front of me or, or potentially perform a dangerous maneuver? And ethically and legally, it's a minefield and they're really, really struggling to kind of square that circle, I understand. So it's a really interesting area at the moment. Yeah, I mean, presumably at the moment, it would, it would try and injure them equally. <laughs> uh, yeah, and who's liable, right? Are, you know, let's take Tesla. If Tesla's manufactured the car, are they liable? Is the software engineer who wrote the code liable? Or does it go, you know, the person in front of me stepped out whilst I was obviously driving in a situation which under the current law of the country I'm in means they were in the wrong, so I'll knock them down. I, I mean, I, mean, I, yeah. I d just sorry to interrupt there. I okay. mean, I, I, f I find the trolley problem, which is the, the, the thing you're describing, yeah. as, a, a, as a bit of a red herring. I think it's a really, really fun thing to debate on news. And I think um, a lot of newspapers will kind of like, pull you know, pull this out as a I, I i don't think it's that big a ethical conundrum or you, as big you, an ethical you think there's a simple answer do you i don't know if there's a simple answer but i think it's i think it's really easy to have these kind of conversations and actually ignore smaller more subtle but more immediate problems i think we'll, we'll be debating the philo philosophy of whether you know you should pull the lever you should go this way that way forever because then there's no answer right but why we do that that creates a bit of a smoke screen a bit of like hey look over here this thing so there's a more nuanced problem i, I think so and I think, that, and I think that's a, one of the things we were trying to say in this group is you know the the narrative in media is good bad everyone will be out of job or no one will be out of job when we're marching to a new utopia and I think the reality is more subtle, more weird, more nuanced than currently the dialogue and the conversation is allowing us to have. Jump straight to kill the person most likely to cost the NHS more. <laughs> yeah. No? yeah Jim, Jim and I definitely definitely trying to lower the, the, the very intellectual points that Andy's making. I mean, no, no, I totally... That is my I, job on the podcast, I, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I can't disagree with anything you're saying. You know, I think it's really interesting to hear the perspective. And, and, and it's so clear to me that you've spent you know, a weekend in the company of some fantastic minds debating this stuff, right? And it's all kind of kind of coming out now, which is brilliant. Maybe the last two points from the from you know from the kind of key perspectives for action were the wild ideas are valuable right now. Yeah. I think is brilliant. And I you know, I love this idea of being curious and, and exploring crazy ideas and I, I just such a key part of being human for me and, and bringing that to the a very technical process I think is fantastic. And the last one is AI is not the only answer. 
yeah. which I thought was great. Uh, anything you'd add particularly on either of those? Well, and I just, I think we're, we're, we're making mistakes that we've made 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, for, for me, and everyone's probably got their own interpretation for that, I see so many organisations that think the solution is a technical solution, whatever it is, and often it's not a technical solution, it's a human solution. And if you immediately assume that I can, I can buy technology, I can install a thing, I can download a widget, I can pay people millions of pounds to put in a, a piece of technology, actually you're probably looking in the wrong place. And that kind of goes to almost full circle around the uh, the missile testing thing that we talked about earlier. You know, it would be really easy to, for someone to say, okay, well, we need to buy a whole bunch of technologies to stop this from happening. Actually, it's probably a human problem. You know, it's it's a it might be a training problem. It might be a very simple design problem that's kind of, you know, causing this. And, you know, we need to look, look deeper and, and, and not assume that we can solve all problems with technology or artificial intelligence or robots. So I guess that's my thought on that. And I guess it can be tempting to layer technology on top of technology, yeah. just making, you know, when you could simplify the existing technology, which might be the, 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 the answer. It's, I mean, it's tempting to try and buy your way out of a problem. And it's harder to try and think your way out of a problem. So people want to take the easy option. And I much prefer to think. And often a lot of the things that we are asked to deliver at Clear Left originally are initially conceived as a feature and when you start digging into the problem it's like this is not going to solve your problem it might be some behavior change it might be different processes it might be putting people sat next to each other in a different way a lot of it comes down to service design at the at the end of the day and so technology is rarely i i would i would argue the solution and you know we're sort of approaching the end of the time slot we've got but there's definitely some more stuff i'd love to discuss so maybe that's a nice segue to just hear a little bit more about the work you do with clear left and and, and what you what you do with your agency yeah sure i mean we uh, clear left are a you know a, a digital design agency ux agency we have been running for sort of 12 13 years i guess the thing that we really value we believe design has an opportunity to, to unlock value for, for customers. I think until recently, a lot of the focus in technology, you know, Silicon Valley and, and large companies like buy technology in. I guess the returns on those purchases are getting more and more marginal. You know, costs of, of delivering technology are coming down. It's really, really quick to replicate what your competitors doing technologically. You can hire a bunch of smart people and they can build things in a matter of weeks, let alone months. I believe that design offers um, you know, a, a way of understanding human problems, a way of solving those problems that generate value to those users. And if you generate value to those users or the customers or the people, you can capture some of that value as an organization. A lot of companies, in particular a lot of tech companies and Silicon Valley companies, have realized the value of design. Your Googles, your Airbnbs, over the last sort of like five or six years, have suddenly massively increased their designers in their organizations because they realize that's where the next competitive advantage is coming from. And so a lot of our work is helping companies realize the value of design at scale. That might be helping them uh, work with their existing teams to unblock them, to get them working more efficiently, to, to, to give them new processes or practices or tools to work with uh, and, and deliver value faster. It might be helping them spin up in uh, like innovation cycles because a lot of teams get so bogged down on BAU, they're not thinking six months six years ahead so a lot of that is kind of like let's start inventing the future and then a lot of it is also around how can we get these teams to scale you know if you've got five people now and you think you might be 50 in a year or two's time how can we help you get to that point how can we help you prove value in design how can we show your bosses that for every dollar you spend on design you get five dollars back 
and how can you find the right people and put the right structure in place? You know, a lot of tech teams have scaled very, very quickly and design is now finding themselves in that similar situation. And so I guess those are sort of the three fronts that we work on ultimately. Yeah, no, really good. I think um, we're in a really good place to sort of bring this back together and, and, and wrap things up. But so I'm going to ask you just something, I guess, on a personal level, if there was one thing that you could spend more time on in 2018, what would it be? I, I don't know. That's a very that's a very difficult question. You know, I'm a, I'm a classic CEO or, or, or managing director. I love my company. I love driving the company forward and also the industry forward. So, you know, I want to do more of everything. I want to be out speaking to more people. I want to be getting people excited about the future. I want to get them excited about the value design can have. I want to see my team do great work and thrive and prosper. Um, I mean, like I say, ultimately, the thing that ClearLeft has always wanted to do is raise the impact of design and we do it through our individuals we do it through our client work we do it through our conferences we didn't even get to chat about yeah. ux well, london and leading design um maybe a paragraph on ux london i noticed the tickets are available now yeah. for the 2018 conference yeah yeah um so ux london we've been running for 10 years first ux conference in the uk longest running the whole purpose of that is to try and give the ux community skills and tools with which to get better um you know it's three days you know talks in the morning workshops in the afternoon the conference is on i think the 23rd to the 25th of may yeah tickets are on sale at the moment and and that's a really good place for for designers to come together to sort of deal with some of these challenges to learn new skills to go back to the office in three days time with the ability to kind of do better work faster, more efficiently, more effectively. We also run a conference called Leading Design, which is um, similar, but for design leaders. So, you know, VPs of design at Google, Facebook, Spotify, coming together to talk about the challenge they've had of becoming a manager of growing and scaling design in large organizations. And so, you know, if you are in an organization that's beginning to professionalize its design practice, that's in October and that's a really great event. So, and again, a lot of this stuff is because we've seen these problems that our clients are facing. It's like, well, mm -hmm. we can only service 10 clients a year. If we bring 300 people to a conference, they can affect 10 people and suddenly we've, we've, we've solved 3,000 you know, people's problems. And so it's about finding ways to scale design. Fantastic. And, and it's funny how many of the best conferences I've ever been to start from that simple challenge which is they just want to get their message to more people and it's the only way they can do it and um i've only heard fantastic reviews of both conferences from from the people in the industry so do check them out um tickets on sale for both of them now jim any final thoughts so what an amazing interview it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating a pleasure. conversation i think we could carry on for hours but um you know our stomachs are rumbling and it's getting late so i think we should uh Go and get ourselves a meal. Yeah, let's go get some Italian food. I, I have a feeling we might have to do another one of these with Andy at some point, given there's so much more we could have covered. But what, in Norway? Maybe in Norway, yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll head over to a podcast and then disappear again. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. It's been an, a real pleasure, a great way to start our, our series of podcasts for 2018. And uh, yeah, looking forward to continuing conversation over the next few hours. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.